Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest is a poet and a writer who has put out a book that's the account of her life. It's an autobiography that she has written called Autobiography of a Face, and it's a story of her account from being a young girl to becoming an adult, dealing with the after effects of a cancer called Ewing's sarcoma that affected her jaw, caused her jaw uh, needed to be removed, and after some 30 operations has been eventually replaced. And as a result of that, went through profound changes in her own life growing up as a young woman. And as a writer, will you please welcome Lucy Greeley to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. How old were you when the uh, sarcoma was first diagnosed? I was only nine, so I was quite young. And I'm 31 now, so it was whatever 31 minus nine is. I, never, I missed um, between about fourth and sixth. I never really started going back to school until seventh grade, so I never learned how to do any math, so I'm a complete imbecile. Everything else was fine, but to this day I can't divide or add or anything like that. So much of that time, though, your education came from hanging out in hospitals and talking with other patients who also were in for operations and so forth. Yeah, it, it sounds, um, it's so funny. I've done a lot of interviews and, you know, the, I've said this before in other interviews, but what happened to me was a life. And I took that life and I made it into a book. And I, I've read a lot of books in my life, but up until this point, I haven't read my book, which represents my life. And I haven't heard, I've heard a lot of interviews, but I've never heard people um, interview me before. And, you know, like, as you sit in one stool, there are 18 million things happening, the lights, the people, the way the seat feels beneath you. And that, that's what happens in your life. One million things happen to you that people take out, like, certain specific, you know, like, you were in hospitals, you did this and you did this, and that's the, the focal point, and it's very real to me because it happened to me, but it also lends a kind of surreal quality to it too. And I think in some ways can serve to really um, distance people, especially if people are having similar um, problems, either with cancer or with a specific facial disfigurement. Or I like to think the book is mostly really about just figuring out who you are and feeling alienated from other people. And so, like, sitting here on the stage, having somebody, like, report my life to me, it seems like, I did that? <laughs> well, what did you have to, what were some of the things you chose to leave out, then? Um, well... I mean, because our perception of you is, is through your book, which is your story of, of your life. I think I left quite a lot of things out. I also, you know, I'm a writer, so I wanted the book to be a well-written book, and the task of a writer is here we're sitting in an entire audience, with a, you know, room with a lot of things going on, but a writer can talk about specific details which can then invoke the entire room. So in my book, um, it's funny, I've been outright accused and sort of uh, more subtly asked in an accusing tone, you know, how can you remember so much? And the truth is, if you look at the book, like I really talk about two chairs, and the way I talk about the two chairs invokes like a whole scene. So I, I really chose to write the book in the way that we sort of remember things, which is that we re remember very specific details which evoke a lot of unsaid things. So I really talked about just the, the perceptions that I was going through as a child, the, the sort of 
try to recreate or reconstruct the here and the now as I was living it as a child and see things from a child's point of view. I think from the perspective of a reader, I mean, that's what sticks out. You know, certain details stick out in my mind as a reader, um, which lead me to want to know a little bit more. They give me a different sense of perception of your experience. Uh, in the hospital, as kind of a gang leader leading people down the hallways to the animal experimentation lab, down through the tunnels of a hospital. Yeah, that, that wasn't, I didn't plan it to work that way. Um, I was a real tomboy, too. And, you know, people are always asking me, if you, what would you have been like if this had never happened to you? And the person that I am now was formed by the person that went through all of those things. To sort of, so to sort of look at life in that way is to sort of imagine your own non-existence, which is impossible to do, so it's not, I can never really say what I might have been like, but I do know that I was outgoing anyway before I was ill. And uh, an important thing to remember, too, is that I got ill and became disfigured before I went through puberty. And I had that sort of natural child's self-confidence that doesn't have to do with worrying about what the boys in class are going to uh, think of you. So when that started to come up, when I was like 16 or so, I just repressed it. And although one side of me was sort of deadened and became very fearful, I became very frightened of other people, I was teased a lot and I really hated that. Another side of me survived, you know, a part that a lot of times doesn't actually get to survive through puberty because, you know, everybody goes through such terrible, you know, self-fears and self-doubts through puberty. That part of me actually, you know, I sort of relied on it in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. You, uh, you write about the, the odd sensation of looking in mirrors and, and catching your reflection everywhere, mm -hmm. that you've learned how to catch it in reflections of glasses, uh, in store windows, uh, that you would also then learn how to ignore it. And uh, looking at a mirror, you would somehow not see yourself, like you wouldn't exist in some way. Yet the writing for you seems then to have been a way to be able to look at a mirror. The book became your mirror. Well, it's... Um if you look at the, I mean, the word look, you know, you say, how do I look? And the intricacies and the subtleties and the dangers of that very question are contained within the grammar because look can either mean I look at or I am looked at. It can be either an action or a passive state. And so you say, how do I look? You know, you're thinking about how other people generate their opinions towards you you know, rather than actively thinking, how do I look at the way you're looking at me? How do I look at the way the world comes towards me? Rather than how do I try and think about what's, ha you know, how I'm appearing to other people? So it can either be active or passive. You can make this decision, and it's not an easy decision by any means, and it's something you have to continuously remind yourself to do, but to look at the way the world does actually reflect yourself back to you, rather than trying to second-guess it, and inevitably in the um, course of second-guessing, we, we almost always catch ourselves short and with a false idea of what we really are and be in the world. Some commentators have, have used your um, book as an essay, as, as a beginning point for essays on the nature of female beauty and, and so forth, but it seems that you get much more to the issue of human beauty, uh, male or female. And, and those fears, those apprehensions, those vast changes you went through. 
Yeah, I, I would never want to be... Um, people really want me to talk about feminist issues and how the, the media and the fashion industry and those things are quote-unquote evil or the enemy, and I, I think that really reduces the issue. It's, it's really about being you know, a human and forming your own human identity. If that identity happens to be female or beautiful or ugly, that, that's what comes after. But um, the purpose of all um, art, I think, is to, to bring you to that moment before you make any of those decisions and to make yourself fully aware of, of yourself as a human so that then you can hopefully go on and make um, a beneficial decision rather than immediately assuming I am a victim of the fashion industry. And I really don't want to be seen as a spokesperson for, you know, lookists or whatever you would want to call them. You, uh, you spent some time uh, hanging out with transvestites in New York uh, who were clearly into appearance and, and makeup. What sort of transition did this have for you? Um, it just sort of happened. It wasn't planned. You know, like I can look back in my life now and say, well, this had meaning and that didn't have meaning and this made me do this. And it's not necessarily like a, a, a you know, a profitable way to look at your, your past. It just sort of happened. I felt very safe with them because in many ways they were as removed from their um, femininity as I was. They had like a physical barrier between them and their femininity. And I had, I felt, had what I saw as a, bar a physical barrier between me and my quote-unquote womanhood. And um, I just felt very comfortable with them. I didn't feel threatened. I wasn't going to become the object of their desires. So, and they were also outcasts in a way that I felt I was an outcast. So I, I, you know, plus nobody knows how to have a good time like a transvestite. <laughs> You've seen uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Yeah, I like that movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a character in this new science fiction movie, Stargate, played by Jay Davidson, who I think would be perfect in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Well, wonderful Egyptian headdresses and costumes. Yeah, I saw that. I liked that movie. It was very apt. What, uh, I would like to hear some of your, your writing in your own words, uh, because it is uh, graceful and, and this is a part of an account of your youth. <coughs> okay, let's see what's happening here. Um, I was still having chemotherapy at this point. I was probably about 13. Um, the following spring, on one of the first warm days, I was playing with an old friend, Teresa, in her neat and ordered backyard when she asked, completely out of the blue, if I was dying. She looked at me casually, as if she'd just asked what I was doing later that day. The other kids say that you're slowly dying, that you're wasting away. I looked at her in shock. Dying? Why on earth would anyone think I was dying? No, I replied in the tone I'd have used if she'd asked me whether I was the Pope. I'm not dying. When I got home, I planned to ask my mother why Teresa would say such a thing. But just as I was coming through the front door, she was entering from the garage, her arms laden with shopping bags. She took a bright shirt out of a bag and held it up against my chest. It smelled me when a price tag scratched my neck. Turtlenecks are very hard to find in short sleeves, so I brought you several. I was still a tomboy at heart and cared little about what I wore, just so long as it wasn't a dress. But turtlenecks? Why on earth would I want to wear a turtleneck in the spring? I didn't ask this out loud, but my mother must have known what I was thinking. She looked me straight in the eye. If you wear something that comes up around your neck, it makes the scar less visible. Genuinely bewildered, I took the bright-colored pile of shirts down to my room. Wouldn't I look even more stupid wearing a turtleneck in the summer? Would they really hide my scar? 
I hadn't taken a good, long, objective look at myself since the wig fitting, but that was almost two years ago. I remembered feeling upset by that, but I conveniently didn't remember what I'd seen in that mirror, and I hadn't allowed myself a close scrutiny since. I donned my short sleeve turtlenecks and finished out the few short months of elementary school. I played with my friend Jan at her wonderful home with its several acres of meadow and most magnificent of all, a small lake. Jan had as complex a relationship to her stuffed and plastic animals as I had to mine, and when I slept over, we'd compare our intricate worlds. Sometimes, though not too frequently, Jan wanted to talk about boys and I'd sit on my sleeping bag with my knees tucked up under my nightgown, listening patiently. I never had much to offer, though I had just developed my very first crush. It was on Omar Sharif. Late one night, I'd stayed up and watched Dr. Zhivago on television with my father. Curled up beside him with my head against his big stomach, I listened to my father's heart, his breathing, and attentively watched the images of a remote world, a world as beautiful as it was deadly and cold. I thought I would have managed very well there, imagined that I would have remained true to my passions had I lived through the Russian Revolution. I, too, would have trudged across all that tundra, letting the ice sheet over me and crackle on my eyebrows. For weeks, I pictured the ruined estate where Zhivago wrote his sonnets, aware that the true splendor of the house was inextricably bound to the fact that it was ruined. I didn't understand why this should be so, and I didn't understand why reimagining why I didn't understand why reimagining this scene gave me such a deep sense of fulfillment, nor why this fulfillment was mingled with such a sad sense of longing, nor why this longing only added to the beauty of everything else. Lucy Greeley, reading from a book, Autobiography of a Face. Later in the book, you talk about how much energy you've, uh, you've expended worrying about your face and, and your looks. And if you'd had, what was it, even a tenth of that, you would have been able to write War and Peace ten times over? Yeah. <laughs> I really like, I, it's one thing to say, oh, you know, and we do this with everything. If you think back and say, oh, my God, I wasted so much time worrying about this and you know, it, I didn't have to spend all that much time, but we can't really, I think regret is just one of the most wasted, useless emotions there is, or are. And um, all you can ever really do is take whatever regret that you feel about all that waste of time and try and apply it to the future. You know, what am I doing now that I don't really need to be doing? And a lot of times, the truth is, is that what we're doing at the moment, no matter how stupid or idiotic it seems, is actually very useful, and, and we need to do it. And we have to learn to forgive ourselves for all our, our quote-unquote wasted time in the past. What would you say is the most idiotic thing you've done in the past month? <laughs> I don't think I could say it on radio. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy Greeley, Autobiography of a Face, a very compelling and moving account and uh, account of your family life that went on around you. And uh, thank you very much for writing the book, and I look forward to your poems and that trashy transatlantic novel you hope to write one day. Thank you very much. Lucy Greeley, thank you very much. For this is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.